Hello, everyone, and welcome to Broadcast, the podcast brought to you by the Journal of International Affairs at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, your premier source for exploring the issues of global importance. My name is Chris Smith, your host for our broadcast, and here with me today to introduce our guest is Catherine Yusko, our co-host for today's episode. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Today, we'll be exploring a case study in solving seemingly intractable conflict, the Colombian peace process. Since 1964, the Colombian government has been locked in armed conflict with an array of far-right militaries and far-left guerrilla groups. Over 50 years of civil conflict in the country has left more than 200,000 dead and millions displaced. But in 2016, the Colombian government signed a historic peace agreement with the country's largest insurgent group and a major combatant in the conflict, known as the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or the FARC. This peace effort was headed by former Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos, who is here with us today. President Santos served in the presidency from 2010 to 2018 and was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize in 2016 for his resolute efforts to bring the country's more than 50-year-long civil war to an end. Prior to serving as president, he also served as the country's Minister of Foreign Trade, Minister of Finance, and Minister of Defense. Before his time in government, he also worked as a journalist for many years and was awarded the King of Spain Prize for his series of chronicles exposing corruption of the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua. He has received honors from the National Geographic Society and the Wildlife Conservation Society for his efforts to fight climate change and protect Colombia's biodiversity, and he currently serves as chairman of the board of the Compass Foundation, which he created to promote peace, protect the environment, and fight poverty. He's also teaching a class this semester as an adjunct professor at Columbia University. President Santos, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great honor and a great pleasure. President Santos, again, thank you so much for taking your time to be uh, here with us today. When you took office as Colombia's president in August of 2010, the civil war within Colombia between the FARC and the Colombian government had been going on for almost your entire lifetime. Yeah, after six years, a peace agreement had been signed between your government and the FARC. Can you provide a brief overview of the history of the conflict for our listeners and explain what the FARC were fighting for? Of course. Uh, As was mentioned, uh, this conflict started in 1964 when a group of uh, peasants that uh, belonged to the Liberal Party were, in a way, excluded from the Colombian democracy. There was an agreement between the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party to share power. Uh, And that agreement was made in order to also stop a tremendous violence between the two parties. And this group that uh, was excluded from this agreement uh, started to grow. And uh, they were very left-wing. They were influenced by what was happening at that time with the the revolutionary movements around the world. Um, They, in a way, became Marxist, Leninist, followed the the Cuban example of the revolution. And slowly but surely, they grew and became the most powerful guerrilla group in the whole of the Western Hemisphere. So uh, that's how it started. It was a process that uh, they started to be present in every territory, in every department of Colombia, because they initially started in a very localized area in the mountains of Colombia, but then they expanded. And after 
So some years they became a, a threat to the Colombian state. And before you became president, you served as the Minister of National Defense. So did your views evolve moving from this position to the presidency? Well, it evolved in, in certain ways uh, that had to do with my relationship with the military, the uh, role that the military should play in a negotiation. Uh, I myself was part of the military. I went, to, I was part of the Colombian Navy many, many years ago. So I knew them. I knew, I knew how they thought, uh, the way they approached uh, the uh, conflict. And so I was uh, quite uh, sensitive to, to their feelings, and that was very important. Um, for example, uh, one thing that I did with the military was tell them that legitimacy for them was the most important asset, and that legitimacy grows from respecting the human rights, even of their enemies, their adversaries. And that had a real change in terms of the cultural uh, environment where the war was developing. So yes, I, I evolved, I learned uh, during uh, my Ministry of Defense and then during the presidency. And when you became president, how did you formulate a plan to form this peace process? What steps did you take to understand what needed to happen and why people had failed in the past, what you needed to do differently in order to succeed this time? Well, I have a story about uh, my life in the Navy and how an officer taught me how to sail. And he said, if you want to be a good sailor, if you want to be in the Navy, uh, you need to know where you want to go. You cannot sail, cannot be a good sailor if you don't know your port of destiny. And that is a useful advice for you in your life, for any business, or if you run a government. I remember that uh, phrase that he told me that was many, many years ago. Well, I found my port of destiny. in two, with two anecdotes. One, in New York, here in New York, when I was Minister of Trade, I was in charge of opening up the economy and uh, we wanted to bring foreign investment to Colombia. So I came to New York with the Minister of Finance to sell uh, Colombia to the investors. And in the middle of the conference, there was a huge bomb in Bogota, in a commercial center. Of course, the news came immediately, the conference failed, and the CEO of a very big company that was present said to me, Minister, you have a great country, very beautiful and rich country, but uh, you will never have real investment if you don't stop the war. And uh, some months later, by pure coincidence, I had to give Nelson Mandela, the chair of something called the United Nations Conference for Trade and Development. I was the chair and I had to give it to Mandela. I went to Johannesburg and there uh, a conversation that I had with Mandela that initially was programmed for half an hour, lasted five hours. 
He explained to me the whole peace process in South Africa. And at the end, he told me exactly the same phrase that the CEO in New York had told me some months before. Your country is a great country, very similar to South Africa, very rich, but it will, it will never take off if you don't stop the war, if you don't have peace. So there, uh, I realized that my life, my port of destiny would be to uh, try to achieve peace in Colombia. So what I did was to start studying um, other peace processes around the world, what was applicable to the Colombian peace process, peace process, what was not applicable, why my predecessors that all tried to negotiate and failed, why did they fail? And so it was a process of, of trying to extract experiences from within the country and from outside the country to create the conditions necessary for a successful peace process. And one of those conditions was precisely that the military balance of power had to be in favor of the state. If the guerrillas think that they can win through violence, they will never negotiate in good faith. And I had the opportunity as Minister of Defense before being president of achieving, of creating that condition. Uh, also, another condition that I, I identified was that the commanders of the, of the guerrillas personally, they themselves had to realize that for them personally, it was better to negotiate peace than to continue the war. That condition I also uh, was able to create during my Minister of Defense by making a complete overhaul in the intelligence of the armed forces and of the state with the help of the CIA, with the help of the MI6 in Great Britain, with the help of the Mossad in Israel. Uh, and through this overhaul of the intelligence, when I was Minister of Defense, we started to hit the higher command of the guerrillas. And that was very important. And the third condition that I identified was that in any asymmetrical war in today's world, you need the support of the region and uh, if it's possible of the international community, but especially of your neighbors. Why did uh, Afghanistan was so difficult? Because they never, a peace process never had the support of all the neighbors. And you, you uh, see that in uh, Ethiopia or in uh, Somalia or wherever. All asymmetrical wars need uh, the support of the neighbors in order to have a successful peace process. So when I became president, the first thing I did was to reach out to uh, especially a person with whom I had no relations. I was very antagonistic. We was Chavez in Venezuela, but I needed him. I needed, I needed his participation in the peace process. So I said, well, let's, let's make the same peace that President Reagan and Gorbachev did when they agreed to uh, decrease the arsenal of nuclear warheads. And I, I use that example that you and I are very different. I will never be Bolivarian revolutionary. You will never be a liberal Democrat, but we can work together for a 
an objective that will benefit both of us, peace in Colombia. And he said, yes, and he helped me. So that's how I created the conditions to have a, a successful peace process. I also did something that uh, was quite controversial at that time, but then it worked out very well. I brought in some international advisors that had hands-on experience in peace process. I brought in uh, the chief of staff of the British prime minister who had been the chief negotiator in the Northern Ireland peace process as my personal advisor. I brought in the commander of the Salvadorian guerrillas who was chief negotiator for the guerrillas in the Salvadorian peace process. I brought in a former minister of foreign relations of Israel who had been sort of the architect of the Camp David agreement between Israel and Palestine. I brought in a professor uh, from Harvard uh, to help me with a theory of negotiations. So that was very important. But I also brought in as negotiators two generals, the most prestigious generals in Colombia, one from the police, one from the army. And that was one of the reasons why my predecessors had failed. They had not taken into account the armed forces. And the armed forces immediately had become spoilers of the process. But I brought them in uh, because I knew that they were interested in peace because my predecessors with a wrong image of the armed forces thought the armed forces were against peace. They wanted to continue the war because they have more budget, more power. I knew that that was not the case. And I used with them a phrase of General MacArthur. You know, the soldiers are the most interested in peace because they are the ones who risk their lives. So bringing the generals in, bringing outside advisors was extremely, extremely important for the peace process to be successful. Now, President Santos, I think you hit on quite a few elements there to, to create the successful peace process. Uh, for me personally, I was uh, served in the army for a decade uh, here in the United States, deployed to Afghanistan and elsewhere. And I was listening to your talk that you gave to Columbia about five years ago, actually. Um, and I remember during that talk, you you mentioned bringing in these outside advisors, but then also bringing the military. I, I do think that was probably one of the key elements to have those differing views in the room um, and to get buy-in from everyone to really solve a problem. Because I do feel that at times when we we look at, say, the military or um, a diplomatic solution to ending conflict, we rely only on one side to do it. And that's where we stand. But in actuality, and you, you said this before, I'm going to quote you right now, uh, but you, you said at one point, no one has hit the FARC harder than I, but all wars have to end at some point, And that requires a negotiated solution. And there's a professor here at Columbia, Professor Stephen Biddle, who, who always says that conflict will always end in a negotiated solution. You know, it, very rarely does it actually end, um, if ever, with, with strictly military um, means. And, and I was very criticized uh, because I was elected president the first time because I was a war hero. I had been a very successful minister of defense giving the hardest blows to the guerrillas during the four years of my ministry. 
And so when I was a candidate, I became the most popular candidate and I won with the highest amount, largest amount of votes in the history of Colombia. But when, but I knew that what you just said, and I, I have been saying it for a long time, all conflicts have to end in a negotiating table. Many people thought that I should continue the war and eliminate every single member of the FARC. Well, that would, would have taken 20 or 30 years more. How many more dead? So I knew it was had to be in the negotiating table, but we, we had to create the conditions. And uh, they warned me, uh, listen, when you sit down with your former enemies, you will be called a traitor because people elected you as a war hero. And that happened. But somebody told me something that I think is a very, a very good lesson. Somebody said to me, listen, I know that they will criticize you. Uh, many people that have uh, negotiated peace agreements, they've been called traitors, and some of them have been killed. But, uh, and you, many people are telling you, your own ministers, continue the war because you will continue to be a very popular person in Colombia. But at the end of your term, if you think back and you say, I could have solved this problem, I could have had a successful peace agreement, would you go to your grave with your conscience clear or not? And that question was a very, very important question for me to be convinced that only the path of negotiation was the correct one, even if it was unpopular at that time. And, and all peace processes have been unpopular at the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about why it was so unpopular? You've, you've spoken in the past about how you centered victims of the conflict in your approach to creating peace. How do you convince people to forgive the atrocities that they've witnessed? That's a very good question, and, and it's a difficult process because I have had the opportunity of making war and making peace. And the first thing I can tell you is that making war is much easier than making peace. Uh, the leadership you need during war is a relatively easy leadership. It's like a vertical type of leadership. You give orders, you have a strategy, you have your tactics, and you rally the forces around you, and you go against your enemy or your adversary. The type of leadership you need to make peace is not vertical, it's horizontal. And instead of giving orders, you need to persuade, to convince, uh, to teach. How can you uh, persuade a mother whose daughter had been raped and killed that the perpetrators, the people who committed that crime will have some legal benefits in order to have peace? It's very difficult. But I was also taught something that for me was a lesson of life. I thought that the victims were going to be the most reluctant uh, in accepting what they call transitional justice, which is a different type of justice in order to obtain peace. 
a justice that's more lenient with the perpetrators, uh, justice that is more reparative than punitive. And I thought the victims were going to be the, the ones that would resist that. Well, I was very pleasantly surprised that it was the contrary. The victims were the ones who, uh, during the process, uh, told me, President Santos, you must persevere, you must continue. And I asked many of them, why are you so generous with uh, the people who, who made you a victim, who committed these crimes against humanity and war crimes? And they said something beautiful. They said, we don't want others to suffer what we suffered. And for me, it was a tremendous lesson. And that helped me. Uh, but it is very difficult to uh, negotiate a peace process because what it boils down to always is where you draw the line between peace and justice. My instructions to my negotiator were seek as much justice that would allow you to have peace. And no matter where you draw the line, you will always, always, and this has happened in every peace agreement, you will have people criticizing you from one side and criticizing you from the other. So that's why it's very unpopular because you have to make concessions to your former enemies. But I tell them, well, you have to sit down to make peace with your enemies. You, know, you don't make peace with your friends. You make peace with your enemies. And uh, I know it is difficult. And I, uh, I repeat one anecdote uh, which is relatively recent. President Clinton went to the funeral of one of the, of the IRA leaders that he had helped when the war uh, in Northern Ireland was going on and, and to make peace. The IRA leader was McKinney's. And President Clinton in the speech, uh, in the funeral of McKinney's said, I know how difficult it is to make peace because I, received a phone call from Nelson Mandela right after they signed the peace agreement in South Africa. And Nelson Mandela said, President Clinton, uh, I am very distressed, very worried. I have been criticized without mercy. And Mandela said, by the people of the upper state, by the, your former adversaries. And Mandela said, no, Mr. President, by my own people because I made concessions to them. Well, that is a, a natural, a logical part of a peace process. And that's why it's so difficult. And so unpopular at the beginning, but peace processes, all of them, when they work, become more popular as time goes on. And people then recognize that that was the correct uh, way to go. So it's one thing to be criticized, um, you know, by the people of your country, by the victims, by your constituents, but it's another thing to be criticized by yourself and live with the choices that you've made in terms of peace and justice. So how do you draw the line in your own heart between how much peace and how much justice you can bear? Well, quite frankly, that, that, uh, decision was not so difficult for me internally because uh, I had seen how the war had beca become so degraded 
in Colombia, we were losing uh, the capacity to, to feel compassion. I remember when I was a journalist, uh, if you did not have a massacre of more than 15 people, it would not make front page. So anything to finish the war, in my heart, was justified. And so for me, it was not difficult to give those instructions to one negotiator. We had some limitations. We uh, negotiated the, the peace uh, process under the umbrella of the Rome Statute. It's the first agreement ever in the history of the world that was negotiated under the umbrella of the Rome Statute, which is an international treaty precisely negotiated to help in the resolution of armed conflicts. And we had also the limitation of our own constitutional court and the Inter-American Human Rights Commission. So we needed to strike a balance and uh, in a way comply with these three uh, limitations that we had. And so uh, anything within those boundaries was acceptable to me. Uh, and that's what we did. And it sounds like you're alluding to this concept of transitional justice as well in what you're saying. Can you talk more about what that means? Yes. Uh, and this is a very difficult part to explain to the public opinion that you are going to apply a different justice of the one we are accustomed to see. When we uh, see a criminal and he is uh, condemned by a judge, he goes to a normal jail. In a normal jail with steel bars and pajamas uh, with, with blinds, well, that's the punitive justice. You punish the person who committed the crime. Well, transitional justice, as its name demonstrates, is a justice to allow a transition from war to peace. So uh, that transitional justice concentrates in, in something that before no peace agreement had taken into account, which are the victims of the conflict, the victims of the war. And uh, that transitional justice, which is in a way stipulated by the Rome Statute, says four rights of the victims have to be guaranteed in this transitional justice. The rights are the rights to the truth. Truth is extremely important as a way of healing the wounds. Many times the victims, what they want is the truth, nothing more. The second right is the right to reparations. Well, I suffered, I need some reparations, so you have to guarantee those rights. The third right is the right to justice. But this type of justice, not the punitive justice. And the fourth right is the right of non-repetition, that whatever is agreed, guarantees that this will not be repeated in the future. So those rights became the heart of the negotiation. And uh, around those rights, uh, we negotiated the whole framework of the agreement, which, uh, as a matter of fact, went far beyond simply uh, disarming the FARC and uh, bringing peace, because peace processes have always two phases. The first phase 
you make the peace, peacemaking. But the second phase is peace building, which is much more difficult and takes a lot, a lot more time. Peacemaking is when you make a deal, you you apply what is what is called DDR, disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration of the insurgency into uh, civil and democratic life. The other phase is reconciliation. That is much harder because it, it needs to heal the wounds of 50 years of war. And that takes a long time. I, I make the analogy of building a cathedral, brick by brick, very carefully, persevering and keeping your, your objective always in mind. And that's where Colombia is right now after five years of signing the agreement. I fully agree with you that uh, the demobilization, disarmament, and reintegration is is a key component of um, of ending conflict. Because when someone has been at conflict, it, it's very difficult sometimes to bring them back from from conflict. You know, just the way you feel, the way you look at things, tenseness, stress. You know, those those build up over time. One thing I have found is, you know in the veteran community here at Columbia, I was just talking with my friends who have served and sharing stories about different events as they occur, you know, has been very cathartic for, for myself. Do you have any stories about people or how individual, either members of the military or from the FARC or, you know, civilians that have been impacted, you know, have you seen them sharing their stories as like, uh, like a healing process? Oh, many stories. I, I will tell you one that probably had uh, the, the biggest impact uh, with me. This is this lady. Her, na- her name is Pastora Mira. She's from a coffee region in Colombia. Her father and mother had been killed. Her two brothers had been killed. And afterwards, her son was tortured and then killed. A few days, two or three days after the funeral of her son that had been tortured and killed, somebody knocked on her door in the rural areas and asked for help, and he was wounded. She brought him in and put him in in the bed of his former son who had just been killed and cured him. When he was cured, he went out to the door and suddenly saw the picture of her with her son. And he saw that, looked at her, and she says he, he, he dropped to his knees and started crying and saying, don't tell me, please, that that is your son. And uh, she said, yes, why? And he said, and started saying, crying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I was the one, I have to tell you, uh, that tortured and killed your son. And uh, this lady was, of course, uh, didn't know what to do, but then saw him crying on his knees. He said, stand up. And he stood up. She looked at him and suddenly embraced him and said, thank you. And this person, this individual said, but why are, are you thanking me? Why? I have just confessed to you and I'm, I reiterate, I'm so sorry that I needed to tell you because you had been so kind to me that I was the one 
who tortured and killed your son? And she said, well, by doing that, you liberated me from hating for the rest of my life. Uh, I thought that was a beautiful story of how important the truth and how important, for example, uh, recognizing your crimes is in the process of healing, in the process of reconciliation. And I, I bring this as an example and use another example of a professor uh, of the University of uh, California, great writer, Jared Diamond. Uh, he went to Colombia and he said, it's so important to recognize and to ask for, for forgiveness that for example, today, why do you think Germany has good relations with the countries that uh, were oppressed and where Germans committed such atrocious crimes like Poland? Why do they have good relations? And why does Japan after the Second World War, Second World War does not have good relations with their neighbors, with the South Korea, with China. Well, the difference lies in that uh, the German Chancellor in 1970, Willy Brandt, went to, to Warsaw and in the middle of the most important plaza, knelt down and asked for forgiveness and recognized what the Germans had done in Poland. And that, in a way, smooth and help the reconciliation. The Japanese never did that. They never apologized and they never recognized their crimes, uh, the war crimes and crimes against humanity. So the relations today, 60 years, 70 years afterwards, are very different uh, in Germany with their neighbors and in Japan with their neighbors because of that. And Mr. President, I think that what you said about healing and being free from hatred is really important, especially considering that even today, there are a number of conflicts that are still going on that people have tried time and time again to solve and have just been unable. And so these conflicts have been labeled intractable. Um, I have a background in Middle Eastern politics and security, and I've spent a lot of time researching the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for example, which many people are convinced simply cannot be solved uh, in a peaceful way. And so I wonder, the Colombian conflict has also been labeled intractable, but yet you are able to bring a peace process and bring parties to the table. So what lessons can other peacemakers facing these unsolvable conflicts learn from your experience? First, that there is no unsolvable conflicts. Every conflict, if there's the will of, the, of both uh, sides and the, the correct conditions, every conflict can be solved. This is the first lesson. As you say, when I talked about the possibility of having a peace process, everybody said, that's impossible, everybody has failed, don't try it. And we did try it and we were successful. There are many elements there. One of the first things that you need to recognize, and I did that when I was waging war, is that your enemy is uh, not uh, your enemy, but your adversary. What does that mean? 
that was a lesson that a general, former commander of the Colombian army gave me when I was Minister of Defense. He went to my office, he was a friend of my father, and he said, I know that you want peace. You are going to be a very successful Minister of Defense because you know how to make war. And what you're doing with the intelligence, that's exactly what it has to be done. And what you're doing about uh, legitimizing the armed forces with the communities, that's exactly what has to be done. But treat the FARC not as your enemies, but as your adversaries. And I asked him, and what is the difference? And he said, it's a great difference. The enemies you eliminate, the adversaries you beat, but the adversaries you're gonna to have to live with them for the rest of your life. Treat them as human beings. They have mothers, they have uh, children, they have the same sentiments that you and I have. Think of them as human beings. And that was extremely important because I started to tell my soldiers, respect the guerrillas of the FARC. And at the end of my ministry, I remember many of the officers, officers when they, uh, they gave me the, the results of, of, of different battles, they said uh, they were uh, 10 uh, guerrillas that were injured and they're already in the hospital. Before I came to the ministry, those 10 guerrillas would be dead. And the moral high ground of the army was then very high and that helped. What I, I'm trying to say uh, with this example is that if you have empathy, is a crucial word in any conflict and you put yourselves in the shoes of the other and you start to understand what are their concerns what are their interests and try to seek where is it that we can find a common ground almost any country i would say any conflict can be resolved and by the way if you like the palestinian israeli conflict there's a recent book uh, I think it's out uh, two weeks ago, called Prophets Without Honor by Shlomo Ben-Ami, who was the former Minister of Foreign Relations. He was even a professor at Columbia some years ago uh, about the Israeli uh, peace process. This is one of the best books I've read about this peace process. And you will see how the two-state solution is in, in big trouble, but the, there is a solution to the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict. So the peace process with the FARC is now six years old. Um, there's a new Colombian administration in place. How do you view the continuation of the peace process? Do you like where do you feel that it stands? How do you feel that where do you feel it's going? Is there any like warnings you want to provide for future administrations to not forget the lessons that you've learned? Well, thank God that the uh, we negotiated the peace process respecting our own constitution and with the support of the international community. I will give you one statistic. Since the Security Council of the United Nations was created right after World War II, the event around which the Security Council has approved more unanimous resolutions in favor has been the Colombian peace process. 
is to tell you that the international community, even with uh, what is happening today, still Russia and the US and China agree in the Security Council to continue supporting the Colombian peace process because of the nature of the, of the process and, and why the United Nations, which was, create, which was created to maintain peace and to make peace, uh, they use it as an example. And in our courts, the constitutional court said, the agreement becomes part of our own constitution and the next three governments, because we agreed in the peace agreement 15 years to implement the agreement, uh, then the constitutional court said for the next 15 years, every president and every government is obliged to implement the agreement. And this government, the one that was elected and right now in power, was elected campaigning against the agreement. And they tried to first to derail the agreement, then to stop the agreement. The Colombian population, the Colombian Congress, and the international community said, no, 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 you need to continue implementing. And now, now, what you're seeing is the president who campaigned against the agreement is finishing his term, but now is bragging around the world and is coming to the United Nations next week and to Columbia University next week, bragging about how he has implemented the peace process. Why did, have to, why did uh, he have to do that? Because of the pressure of the international community and because of the pressure of the internal politics. So in a way, the economic peace process is shielded. What I hope is that the next governments, the next two governments will have more enthusiasm than this government in implementing because if you read the agreement, it's more than 300 pages, Many of the problems that Colombia still has today can be solved simply by implementing the agreement. And do you think, are you hopeful that this agreement will hold because of these protections from the international community and from Congress? Do you believe that this agreement will carry into the future and maybe provide a pretext for future agreements with other insurgencies? I I certainly believe so. Uh, if if it was not uh, destroyed by this government, which tried to destroy it, uh, this uh, sort of acid test uh, was the, the hardest and uh, the agreement made it. <laughs> so I have no doubt that the next president, and uh, you are hearing in the presidential campaign, all the candidates saying, I'm going to implement the agreement because they know how important it is, all the candidates. Amazing. Well, Mr. President, muchas gracias por todo. Uh, this has been a great honor, and we really appreciate all of your time and wisdom. You know, it did my honor, my pleasure, and I feel very happy being a, a professor of Colombia this time. <laughs> President Santos, thank you so much, and we really appreciate your insights on the Colombian Peace Agreement. Hope to see you around Colombia. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to hear more from our experts, please share the podcast with your friends and post about it on social media. You can subscribe to a broadcast on Spotify 
And if you want to catch all the latest from the Journal of International Affairs at Columbia University, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Columbia JIA.